Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The FBI warrant that's got the nation's attention is unsealed. What the feds were looking for in former President Donald Trump's home. The House GOP demands transparency about the FBI raid. What they're saying and their response to reports of nuclear documents at Trump's home. A big win for Democrats today on a budget bill they say will lower costs. Republicans, however, had some strong words of criticism. The D.C. mayor has been denied once, but she's requesting National Guard assistance again. That's amid an influx of illegal immigrants. An author stabbed on stage today is the Iranian government behind the attack. The regime was after this man in the past. And actor Anne Heche has passed away from injuries sustained in a car crash. More details coming up. The search warrant is out, but questions about the FBI's raid remain. The House GOP is demanding answers. NTD's Iris Tau has more on what they're looking for. Republicans of the House Intelligence Committee held a press conference on Friday asking for more transparency and justification for the Mar-a-Lago raid. Let's take a look. So we are demanding disclosure to this committee what was the national security basis that was an apparent immediate threat requiring this action opposed to all the other actions that they could have taken. And amid reports of possible nuclear documents at Trump's home, they say... Was it nuclear? Was it, uh, heck, maybe it was aliens. That's the point. We don't know. We're asking them to tell us. So before you jump to conclusions, we are asking for the answers and the facts. And Congresswoman Elise Stefanik is accusing the DOJ and the FBI of targeting Biden's political opponents. This is the same agency leadership that protected Hillary Clinton, James Comey, and continues to protect Hunter Biden. What the facts are. Meanwhile, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi accuses Republicans of instigating uh, assaults on law enforcement. And that's as Republican Congressman and former prosecutor Trent Kelly says. I trusted the men and women that I work with on a daily basis. I do not trust the level of leadership that have politicized these great organizations of American justice. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tau, NTD News. And now taking a closer look at the warrant's content is NTD's Jason Perry reporting from Palm Beach, Florida. Judge Bruce Reinhart unsealed the seven-page search and seizure warrant on Friday afternoon. NTD has obtained a copy and an attached property receipt that listed what was taken. Three criminal statutes in the U.S. Code were mentioned specifically. They had to do with the concealment, removal, or mutilation of federal documents, gathering, transmitting, or losing defense information, and destruction, alteration, or falsification of records in federal investigations. A conviction under these statutes can lead to imprisonment or fines. The punishment for one of them even includes being disqualified from holding any office under the United States. The warrant shows FBI agents targeted the 45 office and all storage rooms, plus other rooms and structures on the estate where boxes or documents could be stored. According to the receipt, the classifications of the seized documents included top secret and confidential. Trump's lawyers say that the former president used his authority as president to declassify the material before he left office. And earlier on Friday, Trump posted this on Truth Social. Number one, 
it was all declassified. Number two, they didn't need to seize anything. They could have had it any time they wanted without playing politics and breaking into Mar-a-Lago. It was in secured storage with an additional lock put on as per their request. They could have had it any time they wanted, and that includes long ago. All they had to do was ask. The bigger problem is, what are they doing with the 33 million pages of documents, many of which are classified, that President Obama took to Chicago? Author and attorney David Shestokas gave us his legal analysis on the warrant. This warrant is pretty carte blanche as opposed to uh, falling within the general Fourth Amendment uh, restrictions of particularly describing uh, the uh, things to be seized. Uh, you know, it's, it's pretty broad. Uh, it also looks like there was some reason, some, some political reason to uh, cite the statutes that they cited because one of them, in terms of uh, potential penalties, includes being disqualified from holding public uh, holding an office under the United States. But of course, despite the commentary that people have made elsewhere, uh, even if on the off chance that they would have some success in this, would develop a successful prosecution from uh, from this, you cannot add or subtract. Uh, to any of the qualifications under the United States Constitution to hold a federal office. The uh, requirements to become president of the United States under the Constitution are to be 35 years of age, 14 years of, 14 years of resident, and a natural-born citizen. No, uh, no statute can say, well, because you broke such a law, you can no longer be president of the United States. Many questions still remain. One of them is... If there was an imminent threat to national security and the warrant was authorized on August 5th, why did the FBI wait three days to seize the documents? It's also important to note that the affidavit in support of the search warrant remains under seal. That document would include key details, including why prosecutors believe there was probable cause to search Mar-a-Lago. Jason Perry, NTD News, Florida. The National Archives responded to Trump's statement today saying they took custody of Obama's presidential records when he left office in 2017. The files are stored at their own facilities, one in the Chicago area, the other in the D.C. area. They added that in accordance with the Presidential Records Act, Obama has no control over where and how the National Archives stores his records. And Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene is taking action in response to the FBI's raid on former President Trump's Florida residents. She's introducing articles of impeachment against Attorney General Merrick Garland. What they've been doing to President Trump is political persecution. Merrick Garland has abused his position of power um, as the Attorney General to politically persecute Joe Biden's enemies. And the whole purpose of this is to prevent Green says she can't tolerate this type of thing in America, and that's why she introduced the Articles of Impeachment. She says U.S. institutions have been abused in a way to defeat people's political enemies. And the tax fraud case against the Trump Organization will keep moving forward. Today, a New York judge denied motions to dismiss the charges against former President Trump's company and its former chief financial officer, Alan Weiselberg. Weiselberg and the Trump Organization are accused of a 15-year tax fraud scheme. The prosecutors say the scheme let Weiselberg evade taxes on more than $1.7 million. The Trump Organization and Weiselberg have pleaded not guilty. The judge said the jury selection is set to begin on October 24th. 
And a big win for Democrats in Washington today. The bill, dubbed the Inflation Reduction Act, is now headed to the White House to become law, despite Republicans' efforts against it. Here's NTD's Melina Weiskup with more. In a strict party-line vote, House Democrats this evening single-handedly passed a health care and climate bill dubbed the Inflation Reduction Act. Progressives claiming full victory due to their persistence. And let's be clear, we are here because progressives held the line to turn that agenda into a House passed piece of legislation. And though it falls short of their climate wish list, there's still a historic amount of funding for renewable energy. Hundreds of billions of dollars for tax credits to incentivize the transition to renewable energy while cracking down on emissions by fining producers. The methane emissions reduction program, which is a fancy term for what could be more accurately described as a tax on American natural gas. Republicans say this will cause energy prices to go up, worsening inflation. But some were upset with how quickly it moved through Congress. This is the bill, 728 pages we got from the Senate this week. Has anybody read it? Come on. Ahead of the final vote, House members debated the bill for three hours, with House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy giving a lengthy speech for over an hour. So when you say that you're not going to go after every American to audit, you're not being honest. A main back and forth dispute was over the IRS expansion. Building a fairer tax system that will invest in workers without raising taxes on families and small businesses. If the left will weaponize the FBI to raid President Trump's personal residence, they will surely weaponize the IRS's new 87,000 agents, many of whom will be trained in the use of deadly force. As for health care, the government's role is expanded with this bill. Medicare will cap insulin and prescription drug costs while negotiating drug prices for a number of other drugs. Republicans argue the health care provisions will kill funding for more cures. We have been trying for decades to prevail, to win legislation that enabled the secretary to negotiate for lower prices. And since this Inflation Reduction Act has passed the Senate already strictly along party lines, now we're seeing the same situation in the House, a strict party line vote. Nevertheless, it's still off to the White House for the president's signature. But President Biden is on vacation right now, so it will be at least a week until he comes back to the White House to sign it. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. And to dig into this legislation and what it will mean for Americans, earlier today I spoke with Tavi Costa from Crescat Capital. He warns that big government spending typically leads to higher inflation, and then coupled with slowing economic growth, you get what's known as stagflation. Tavi Costa, welcome to our show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, the Democrats' Inflation Reduction Act is meant to reduce the burden for household expenses, but some expect that it will also somehow affect um, incomes and make wages lower for some Americans. How is that possible? How likely is that as well? Well, look, I think it's, it's more important actually to focus on the amount of fiscal stimulus coming in. There, back in the 70s, for instance, there was a lot of a good notion from policymakers in general. Uh, they were very much aware of the impact of fiscal stimulus and inflation. That is one of the major drivers is this reckless fiscal spending that we're seeing today is certainly what drives inflation as well. So an act that is supposedly to increase drastically government spending should actually be uh, also inflationary uh, overall. So uh, the, the picture still looks 
uh, long-term, very inflationary in my view. Right. So how is that possible with a, an Inflation Reduction Act? We've even got the Congressional Budget Office, which is nonpartisan, saying that it's likely to have a negligible, negligible impact on inflation. What's going on there? Well, that package actually looks much more environmental than actually an inflation act per se. Uh, regardless, is we're seeing different forms of increases in terms of uh, social programs that should actually just uh, reinforce the or fulfill this this inflationary problem, in my opinion. Uh, the biggest issue we're not seeing a revo resolve is in natural resources, is, is on the availability and supply of commodities in general that have not been fixed at all. Uh, we haven't seen any support from the government in most of those commodity uh, industries or companies that have not got any support from policymakers when it comes to helping them uh, to create new projects, explore, develop, and produce natural resources to function the economy. So that, that to me, is, is the, a structural problem that hasn't been resolved at all. And grocery prices have just hit their highest level in 43 years. That's despite President Biden saying the economy had 0% inflation in the month of July. What's going on? So we have kind of a dilemma. Uh, the CPI number is sort of a lagging indicator. Uh, and as you can see right now, we've had a three month since March, most cyclical commodities have certainly declining prices. So you have copper, uh, most of the energy commodities have declined. The issue is that as of this month, we're starting to see other things are starting to move. So let's say natural gas prices have actually been very close to making new highs in prices. Well, that is a cascade effect or a domino uh, impact as well, where you start to see other commodities being impacted by natural gas. One of them would be ammonia prices that then starts to drive uh, agricultural commodities and so forth. That's precisely what we saw in 2021 when lumber prices began to increase. So it's very, very important to pay attention to those early moves in commodities because I think they're going to lead to overall commodity prices to move much higher. And with so many factors influencing these price rises, when can we expect the prices to come down? I think we, just like the 70s, inflation happens through waves, and we had three waves of inflation during the 70s. One that started in late 60s, the other one in the mid-70s, and the other one in the late 70s. So we should expect to see something similar. Inflation accelerating and decelerating will be part of uh, this new macro environment, but I don't think in average for the next decade, inflation is actually going to be well above where it was in the prior 10 years and the prior 20 years. And so that's going to change the, the, the investment uh, environment in general. Uh, how do we approach portfolio positioning, uh, but also psychologically, as we continue to see prices well above, let's say, 5 6% on a CPI basis, which is very, under, I would say, completely understating the real inflationary uh, problem that we have, uh, but still, uh, psychologically, will have an impact on consumers. And so uh, that, over time, is very entrenched in the, in the economy. And so it's going to be difficult to get rid of inflation uh, in the very short term, unless we really, really have a depression or something along those lines uh, here in the economy. And after this bill is signed into law, where do you see the U.S. economy heading? I'm quite worried about where we are in terms of the economy because we haven't seen yet labor markets 
uh, deteriorate because that's a lagging indicator. However, we're certainly starting to see our leading indicators show uh, that we are very close to an economic downturn. You can look at PMIs. They're the worst level since they were in the global financial crisis and the COVID recession. And if you use that as one example, um, at those times during the COVID recession and the prior recession was certainly a time when we saw a policy stance uh, completely being reversed, meaning the Federal Reserve had to slash rates to zero and double its, the size of its balance sheet. Today, we're seeing quite the opposite on the back of this uh, economic downturn or deceleration, depending on what part of the economy we're talking about. But that will have an impact because tightening monetary conditions have a lagging impact in the economy. So we're yet to see that coming in the next six to nine months. So to answer your question, I think we're going to see classic stagflationary environment in about six to nine months from now. All right, Tavi Costa, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Now, in Washington, D.C., again, is asking for National Guard assistance over an influx of illegal immigrants in the nation's capital. The mayor's first request for assistance was denied earlier this month. Washington Mayor Muriel Bowser on Thursday again asked the Department of Defense for assistance with the surge of illegal immigrants. That's after governors of border states began busing the immigrants to the city. Instead of asking for an open-ended deployment, Bowser now asks for 90 days of help. She says the National Guard is uniquely resourced to provide emergency logistical support. If approved, Guard personnel would establish new sites to house and feed illegal immigrants, amongst other things. The initial request was denied earlier this month because the Pentagon ruled that nonprofits in D.C. had already received enough federal funding to support the illegal immigrants. And in New York State, an Indian-born author attacked on stage today. The Iranian regime wanted to see this man dead 30 years ago and even offered a bounty for anyone who killed him. Salman Rushdie is the author of The Satanic Verses, the book has been banned in Iran since the late 80s, as many Muslims consider it to be blasphemous. He was attacked in western New York on Friday, just as he was about to give a lecture. New York State Police say Rushdie suffered an apparent stab wound to the neck and was transported by helicopter to an area hospital. His condition is not yet known. A state trooper at the event reportedly took the suspect into custody. In 1989, Iran's late leader Ayatollah Khomeini issued an edict known as a fatwa, calling for Rushdie's death and offering a nearly $3 million bounty. Iran's government has since distanced itself from Khomeini's edict. However, in 2012, a semi-official Iranian religious foundation raised the bounty on Rushdie to $3.3 million. According to the New York Times, an Iranian official declined a request for comment, saying they won't get involved in this. Also on Friday, a man was indicted for possessing a firearm with an obliterated serial number. According to police, the man waited for two days in front of the Brooklyn home of an Iranian-born journalist in late July. The journalist said the man was sent by the Iranian regime to kill her. And just this week, the Biden administration charged an Iranian official with plotting to murder John Bolton, a Trump-era national security advisor. The U.S. believes the alleged plot against Bolton was a retaliation move for the death of Iranian commander Qasem Soleimani, who was killed in 2020. 
State authorities have identified the suspect accused of stabbing the author as 24-year-old Hadi Matar. Police say they're working with the FBI to determine what could have motivated the attack. An Emmy Award-winning actor, Anne Heche, died today at 53. Her family confirmed the death after the actor was injured in a car crash. Heche remained in critical condition after crashing her car into a house in the Mara Vista neighborhood of Los Angeles, destroying the home. She is best known for her role in daytime soap opera Another World. In the 1990s, she appeared in a few major movies with stars such as Johnny Depp and Harrison Ford. In more recent years, she was working on a podcast, starred in a Lifetime movie, and appeared in a Netflix movie. Heche suffered a severe brain injury and never regained consciousness. She had traces of cocaine in her system. She is survived by two sons, ages 13 and 20. And coming up, what are the potential impacts of the COVID-19 vaccine on young children? An epidemiology expert has a message to parents. And rents in Manhattan are soaring to a record high, forcing many tenants to leave the city. We'll hear more about this issue from an economist after the break. As the Biden administration calls on parents to vaccinate their young children against COVID-19, medical professionals are discussing the potential impacts. The host of NTD's The Nation Speaks, Cindy Drucker, speaks with Dr. Paul Alexander. He's a former COVID policy advisor at the Department of Health and Human Services. Epidemiology expert Dr. Paul Alexander tells NTD that as children grow, they need to be exposed to pathogens in the environment to develop their immune system. The immune system needs to be trained on how to deal with different threats. It's a very brief window of opportunity in early childhood that these innate antibodies must be allowed to bind to viruses in the environment. Now, what we are arguing is this. Children with the COVID injection, the, the induced antibodies are what we call highly specific, high affinity antibodies. That's how they function and that's how they've been made. They're highly specific to the target antigen, which is the spike protein. He says the COVID-19 vaccine creates vaccine-induced antibodies. Those antibodies are ineffective at stopping infections, but they still bind to viruses. In binding, they block the innate antibodies from binding and therefore doing its job to educate the larger innate immune system. So that's the problem. The problem is the, the vaccinal <laughs> antibodies will sideline. It would not destroy the innate immune system, but it sidelines and subverts the innate antibodies' capacity to bind. Dr. Alexander says this reduces a child's natural immune system. Here's what he has to say to parents deciding whether or not they want to give their child the COVID-19 vaccine. This is really a risk management decision for you today, which is simply this. What is the risk to my children from COVID? Zero. That's it. What is the benefits from the vaccine? None. Is there harms? Are there harms? Yes. So as a risk management decision, I just worked the equation out for you. You're going to have to decide against this vaccine. You can watch the full interview with Dr. Paul Alexander on NTD this Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. 
Scott Peterson's trial attorney says he missed an opportunity to grill a California juror about bias. That juror eventually helped send Peterson to death row for murdering his pregnant wife and unborn child. The California Supreme Court upheld Peterson's conviction but overturned his death sentence in 2020. Now, Peterson's appellate lawyer is arguing that the former fertilizer salesman deserves a new trial because of juror misconduct. Attorney Cliff Gardner alleges juror Rochelle Neese was biased and lied to get on the jury that convicted Peterson in 2004. He says it was a mistake not to question Neese after seeing her jury questionnaire. On the questionnaire, she admitted that she could not fairly look at the case. Neese also failed to disclose that she had filed a lawsuit and sought a restraining order while pregnant because of threats from her boyfriend's ex-girlfriend. She also failed to disclose that a boyfriend beat her in 2001 while she was pregnant with another child. Neese testified that she may have improperly qu answered questions, but that she did so truthfully because she forgot. And turning now to Manhattan's housing market. It's bouncing back from the pandemic, and the soaring rents are forcing many long-term tenants to give up their apartments altogether. Here are the details. It's one of my favorite colors. Jerry Weinberger has been living in Manhattan since 2015. When she signed her lease for this Upper East Side studio in October 2021, she got a deal of $1,833 per month when the original price was $2,100. But that grew significantly in less than a year. I just got my lease renewal in the mail from my landlord about a week, two weeks ago. Uh, and they said they're raising the rent for my apartment to $2,500. So that's quite a large jump from 1833 to $2,500. Weinberger reached out to her landlord and tried to negotiate a price, but that didn't work out. She says she expected the rent to increase, but not by this much. They said that the reason is this is the market price. They said, you know, rents have gone up 40% even in Brooklyn and in even Harlem, all these places, so that there was nothing I could do. And if I had to leave, then oh well, because they have other people who want to live here. Weinberger says she can't justify $2,500 a month, so she plans to move to Jersey City soon. Kenny Lee, an economist with Street Easy, says renters are being squeezed out because there aren't many listings, even though the number of properties available has been rising steadily. So we looked into the data to really find out what's going on. And we realized that a lot of uh, renters are being priced out of their current home as the landlords seek to reverse the pandemic deals they offered during 2020 and 2021. Manhattan's median asking rent soared to $4,100 by the end of the second quarter. That's equivalent to 55% of the borough's monthly medium household income. The rent price increases in New York City have not really peaked yet. And given how low the current inventory is for the rental market, I think the rent should continue to increase uh, at least a few more months through the end of summer or perhaps into early fall. I think there are some reports that there are some there is some stabilization of rent prices on a national level. We're not seeing that yet in New York City. Lee says tenants priced out of their homes likely account for more than one third of the city's available rentals. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, Southern Californians have found a new way to bargain hunt across the border. With much more competitive prices in Mexico's closest neighboring city, 
the wait crossing through customs is worth it for some shoppers. And in the NBA, an icon is celebrated in an unprecedented way. NTD's Dave Martin has the announcement and its significance. That and more when we return. With 40-year high inflation and grocery costs skyrocketing, what is an average American family to do to put food on the table? Southern California residents go where groceries are cheaper, Mexico. For San Diegans, it's a 20-minute drive from home to Tijuana, Mexico. According to News Station, many residents in Southern California find it worth the trip to shop for groceries there. David McCarty, a resident of Chula Vista, told News Station, quote, if you are on a budget, you got to take care of yourself. David and his wife live a short walk from Mexico, and they frequently cross the border for tacos and routine pet checkups, among other things, to save money. It takes Gibran Jimenez and his growing family two hours to get to Tijuana, but still they find it cheaper to shop there. A gallon of milk is 50% less, a four-pack of toilet paper is almost $4 cheaper, and they can save a buck on a 24-pack of Tylenol. Gas is $1.24 cheaper on the other side of the border, so many fill up while they are there. It beats the $5.38 per gallon average in California, a number released by AAA. One popular market has seen a 20-30% to 30 increase in business from American tourists during weekdays. Fruits and vegetables are not allowed through customs. No matter how much cheaper they are, it's not worth it to risk getting caught and having to pay a $1,000 fine. The average daytime temperature in Southern California is currently 90 degrees. The Tourism Board for Seattle set up a rain booth there to give Californians a taste of their Pacific Northwest climate. People in Los Angeles are used to sunny, hot weather and are mostly strangers to rain. But for a brief moment, they can pretend they're in Seattle, a city famous for its rainfall. It's a beautiful, sunny, hot day in Venice Beach, and we've brought a little refreshing Seattle rain to this hot afternoon. So we're inviting uh, everyone and anyone to come into the Seattle rain booth to cool off, to feel refreshed, uh, and feel a little of the Seattle romance and what the rain brings. Visitors sang, danced, kissed, and frolicked in the rain and had their photo taken with the Seattle skyline in the background they also get a free image of their rainy experience. What do the visitors have to say about the rain booth? It's pretty cool on a day that's about 90 on the beach that we never have, so it's pretty, it's pretty nice. I appreciate it. It makes me miss Seattle. It was, it was very nice because it's very hot out today, so it was um, nice to feel that rain. You know, it was good. It definitely felt a little bit weird having lots of people stare. Yeah. I've had like a photographer take a picture, but seeing lots of people, uh, watching us is kind of weird. It was. Yeah. No, it was an amazing experience. Uh, I'm really like ecstatic you guys are doing it out here. Also, it's super hot, so yeah. the rain feels great. <laughs> I appreciate it. While some used the booth as an Instagram opportunity, there were others who had an emotional response to the rain. So many smiles, right? The world needs more joy right now. And to see people in here and smiling, there was a little baby that was just like putting its little paws in the rain. And you could tell it probably hadn't seen the rain in a while. A gentleman said he hasn't seen the rain in six months and he put his head in it. And it was just like, that's what the world needs, joy. The Seattle style rain booth is headed to other hot locations in the U.S. 
Its next stop is the Arizona desert. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. The NBA is permanently retiring Bill Russell's number six jersey for all 30 teams. The iconic player who won 11 NBA titles in 13 seasons and was a civil rights pioneer is the first in league history to have such an honor. Only baseball's Jackie Robinson and the NHL's Wayne Gretzky have had their numbers retired in the same widespread fashion. Players who currently wear the number six, such as LeBron James of the Lakers, don't have to change it, but the number six will never be issued again. Russell, who passed away on July 31 at the age of 88, was the ultimate winner. The 6'10 center won the last two of his record 11 titles as a player coach for the Celtics. Before turning pro, he won two NCAA titles with San Francisco, as well as an Olympic gold in the 1956 Summer Games. Individually, he won five MVP awards and his second all-time in rebounds. Off the court, Russell marched with Martin Luther King Jr. and received the Presidential Medal of Freedom. He was elected to the Hall of Fame in 1975. In NFL news, Tampa Bay quarterback Tom Brady will be absent from the team for what head coach Todd Bowles called personal reasons. Brady plans to return after their preseason game against the Titans on August 20. Bowles said that the absence was discussed in advance of training camp and that he has a pretty high level of confidence that Brady will be the starting quarterback in their first game of the season against Dallas on September 11. Brady, who turned 45 last week, is set to be the oldest starting quarterback in league history this fall. A winner of a record seven Super Bowl titles, Brady famously retired in the offseason only to change his mind six weeks later and return. In Brady's absence, the team is planning to use veterans Blaine Gabbert and Ryan Griffin, as well as Kyle Trask, who was the team's second-round pick in 2021. Elsewhere in the league, the New York Jets have signed one of the best remaining free agents in offensive tackle Dwayne Brown, according to a report on ESPN. The deal is believed to be a two-year contract worth $22 million. The Jets began talking to the 36-year-old Brown last week before projected starter Mekhi Becton suffered a knee injury. The Jets may have to move left tackle George Fant back to the right side to make room for Brown. Fant played mostly at left tackle last season for the Jets, but has played on both sides of the line during his five-year career. Brown, meanwhile, has played his entire 14-year career as a left tackle with much success. A first-round pick out of Virginia Tech in 2008 by the Texans, Brown was named to his fifth Pro Bowl last season and was a first-team All-Pro selection in 2012 with Houston. The Jets will play their first preseason game tonight in Philadelphia against the Eagles. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, some countries in South America are seeking closer trade ties with China while others are still cautious. And the UN's nuclear chief warns that military activity at Europe's largest nuclear plant in Ukraine could lead to dangerous consequences for the region. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. Some countries in South America are seeking a trade zone with communist China while others are staying cautious. 
That's as the U.S. warns of the Chinese regime's infiltration into the region using trade as political leverage. Uruguay will push for a free trade agreement with the Chinese regime. That update comes from the South American country's top diplomat. The effort has already seen resistance from some of its neighbors. They favor regional trade talks instead of deals involving just one nation. The plan was announced as the Mercosur trade bloc countries held their annual summit. There they discussed opening the South American trade zone to China. The bloc consists of Argentina, Brazil, Uruguay and Paraguay. Argentina's president is also in favor of common negotiations with China. In the same way as we did with Singapore, which was possible, if there's any possibility to think of an agreement between Mercosur and China, why don't we analyze it together? Why don't we see its common feasibility? The agreement will be more important if we add Brazil's 200 million population. It will be stronger. Also, take into account that among us four, there's a country that already has commercial ties with China. Why don't we think of us as what we are, a single space? The Uruguayan president said his country will launch formal trade negotiations with communist China. That's in order to boost exports of raw materials, industrialized products and technology. For years, Beijing has sought closer trade ties with the emerging markets of Latin America. But the U.S. has warned about the Communist Party's efforts to use trade ties as political leverage and to help expand its influence in the region. The U.S. also voiced concern that Beijing's involvement in Latin American infrastructure projects could create unsustainable debt burdens for the countries involved, or even national security worries, given Beijing's history of espionage activities. Paraguay's president is asking for caution, saying the countries should study the possible impacts before signing up for anything with Beijing. We have to evaluate the individual impact to each state member of every commercial agreement we individually negotiate with different economies. Paraguay does not have diplomatic relations with the Chinese communist regime. Instead, it's one of the few countries that maintains diplomatic ties with Taiwan. In a previous interview, Brazilian journalist Rafael Fontana highlighted the Chinese Communist Party's infiltration into Latin America, especially Brazil. The Brazilian government was blackmailed by the Chinese regime. Uh, if Brazil didn't allow Huawei to build the 5G infrastructure inside the country, China wouldn't sell coronavirus vaccines to Brazil. Fontana worked as a journalist in China. After returning to Brazil, Chinese telecom giant Huawei hired him as a PR director. Through that relationship, he got an inside look into how the regime operates. When I was interviewed by the vice president of the communications in Brazil, I realized that he was a member of the CCP. A few days later, I attended a meeting in Sao Paulo, and all the top exec executives in the office were members of the party. Experts say if America continues to turn a blind eye, Beijing may take over Washington's place in the region, something that could threaten the U.S. And the French Air Force is conducting military exercises in the Indo-Pacific, which the French government calls an unprecedented power projection. One analyst says the move is a response to Chinese aggression in the region. More from NTD's France correspondent David Vives. 
Seven French warplanes departed this week to France's overseas territory of New Caledonia in the southwest Pacific, followed by joint exercises with Australia, the United States, Canada and New Zealand. The operation is meant to train 160 military personnel and will last until mid-September. France's defense minister called it an unprecedented power projection operation in the Indo-Pacific area with France's partners. The exercises are coming on the heels of the release of a transcript of a parliamentary hearing. Admiral Pierre Vendier testified on the 27th of July, a few days before Beijing conducted retaliatory military exercises around Taiwan. Vendier, who was the head of the French Navy, said, Against the Chinese Navy, we will win if we fight together, in coalition. Policy analyst Mathieu Sirvens says, For the French military, a war with China has become a possibility. War is upon us. That's, in my opinion, the most important thing to take away from the Admiral's testimony. This is what he says about the Chinese Navy. We will win if we fight together. In this view, the war is already here. In the view of the French military, that's the case. The Admiral testified that France has never in history been able to fight alone against an adversary with equal or superior strength. He also said at the hearing, I have spent the last two years explaining everywhere that we're witnessing a movement of naval rearmament unprecedented since the Second World War. In 2030, the tonnage of the Chinese Navy will be 2.5 times greater than that of the American Navy. His spokesperson later said Vendier's words should not be misinterpreted and that France was not at war with China. Servants says the purpose of Vendier's statement was to send a message. For the French military and the French armed forces, it's a way to send a message, because they, being on the ground, especially in the Navy, are confronted regularly with the aggressiveness and hostility of the Chinese military, and they actually see this aggressiveness, this hostility. Last week, the G7 foreign ministers condemned China's military exercises in the South China Sea. But neither French President Emmanuel Macron nor the French government have directly addressed Beijing's recent moves. Servance says that China has regularly acted with hostility toward France in the Indo-Pacific. For several years, the French Navy has been conducting what they call freedom of navigation exercises to guarantee and show that the Taiwan Strait is an open passage. But every time they do this, and increasingly so, they are harassed by Chinese ships. There have also been cases around a Chinese base in Djibouti in Africa, where French fighter planes have been blinded by Chinese lasers. France Navy is the seventh largest in the world. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. UN Chief Antonio Guterres has called for military activity around Ukraine's Zaporizhia nuclear power complex to end, as Moscow and Kyiv blame each other for renewed shelling. The UN Security Council met to discuss the perilous situation. Plant workers told the BBC that they are held at gunpoint by Russian soldiers. This report is from NTD's Eddie Aitken. The United Nations is calling for immediate end to all military activity around Europe's largest nuclear power plant in southeastern Ukraine and for it to be declared a demilitarized zone. The military actions that have even the smallest potential to jeopardize nuclear safety or nuclear security at such a nuclear installation must stop immediately. 
Addressing a UN Security Council meeting, Grossi urged Russia and Ukraine to immediately allow his nuclear experts to assess the damage and evaluate safety and security. Moscow and Kiev once again accused each other of shelling the plant, including on Thursday. Kiev's criminal attacks on nuclear infrastructure are pushing the world to the brink of nuclear catastrophe, comparable in scale with Chernobyl. He said Ukrainian armed forces are repeatedly using heavy artillery and multiple launch rocket systems to shell Zaporizhia. Ukraine's ambassador accused Russia of what he called elaborate plans of deceit, sabotage and cover-ups to stage the shelling at the plant. None of us can stop the wind if it carries radiation. But together we are capable of stopping a terrorist state. And the sooner we stop Russia, the sooner Europe and the world will be able to feel safe again. Kislitsha blamed what he called Russia's unjustified conditions for the delay in getting UN nuclear experts to Zaporizhia. While the plant is controlled by Russia, its Ukrainian staff continues to run the nuclear operations. Meanwhile, the BBC reported staff working at the plant told the broadcaster via text messages that they are held at gunpoint by Russian soldiers who are everywhere at the plant, and that on some days it's too dangerous to go to work there because of the shelling. The International Atomic Energy Authority has warned that the staff's operating under extremely stressful conditions. Ukraine's interior minister says that Ukraine had to be ready for any scenario, including evacuations. Nuclear experts say if there was a nuclear accident, it is unclear who would deal with it during such a war situation. Eddie Aitken, NTD News. And now to the UK. The source of the River Thames, the UK's second longest river, has dried up further downstream than ever before. Environmentalists are worried about the fish and other wildlife in the shallow and warm water. NTD's John Dee has this report. Here is the source of the River Thames in Gloucestershire. The natural spring that supplies the river dries up most summers, but this year the dry riverbed reaches significantly further downstream than in previous years. The manager at the Thames Head Inn, a pub a few steps from a stone that marks the source of the river, witnessed the worrying changes. It's always dry in the summer here, but uh, we do worry about what that's going to look like in the winter now, because if it's that dry up in the summer, it might not even come back this way in the winter. So that's sort of a fear. But it is still the official source of the Thames, so the stone will always be there. But whether or not the water comes through is another issue. <laughs> Standing in a small section of the Thames in Cricklay, about 50 miles west of London, Alistair Knoll, an engagement officer at the Rivers Trust, said the shallow, warmer water contained less oxygen. It's much, much easier to boil a small pot of water than a big pot of water. So just think about the effect on that wildlife, like the fish and the invertebrates that live in the water, pulling oxygen out of the water to live. There's less, oxy less, less oxygen in that warmer water. That has a massive effect on our wildlife. Hannah Cloak, climate expert and hydrologist at the University of Reading, said low rainfall has left river levels and underground water levels low. She said the water level under Sonning Bridge in Reading is much lower than usual. So you can see here that the water level is very, very low. 
uh, and we would expect the water to be much higher at summer. I mean, in winter it goes right up to the top of the bridge pier, but, but in summer, this, you know, this is quite a low level. If we don't get rain in August, in fact, if we have a dry winter, then we could be in severe trouble come spring and next summer when we really don't have any water stores left whatsoever. You can see we're going into water restrictions already. We haven't got the infrastructure in place to deal with these problems. We've got leaks springing out everywhere. Um, we don't have enough water for agriculture. So therefore we need to do something quite quickly in order to make sure that infrastructure becomes up, up, up to scratch. John D, NTD News. Coming up, highly trained detection dogs learn to sniff for USBs, microchips and hard drives. The canine efforts are set to help combat child abuse and terrorism across Australia. We bring you the details in just a minute here on NTD News. Highly trained sniffer dogs can detect all kinds of contraband. Now, a select few have added USBs, microchips, and hard drives to their list. And that's to help combat child abuse and terrorism across Australia. Dogs are frequently used by law enforcement to sniff out explosives and drugs. But this clever canine has learned a new skill, using her incredible nose to sniff out USBs and hard drives. The dogs that we currently have out there um, predominantly search for USBs, microchips, any form of digital media that carries memory. The digital storage items can reveal new evidence in cases and contain files that police use to identify criminals. These dogs specifically target those items that might otherwise be missed in a search. Only the top dogs are selected for this job. We require the top 1% of dogs that we see through the program to succeed in this discipline. The dogs are picked from as young as nine weeks old for a strenuous training program. It's every day from morning to afternoon and some night shifts there as well too. And it's been a, about a three month process to just get these dogs out and working. At the end of the day, the dogs are rewarded for their hard work with some playtime. Their only paycheck is to get a big play and a big game at the end of doing something right. The dogs have helped solve crimes all over Australia. Currently, they've been deployed in more than 70 operations and found more than 300 items. Thanks to their success, the program has been expanded to Victoria, South Australia and Western Australia. Currently, there are nine dogs working and another two in training. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.